you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open with me to Mark chapter 3 and pull out that yellow sheet of paper, half sheet that says Jesus and the Sabbath part 2. You know, last week we looked at Jesus and the Sabbath and we talked about Sabbath rest, enjoying the Sabbath rest that comes from resting deeply and well in the Lord. And I was so encouraged this week to get so many wonderful emails from our deacons with pictures of them sleeping. Um, They just said that they really soaked up the message and they had found great time to sleep. And so they sent me these wonderful emails of them sleeping and texts of their pictures of them sleeping, just saying that they really caught on. And so as we get to a Sabbath in uh, part two, I would encourage you, if you have not yet taken that good time to rest, wait till after church and get it in, and we'll talk about it later. All right, so let's go and dive in. Mark chapter three, starting in verse one, Jesus and the Sabbath, part two. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to this man with a withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray together. The Lord, help us. Lord, we want to uh, soak up your word, and we want to not have more information about your word, but we want to let it lead to a life change within us, that our hearts would be open and be malleable, and that we would be different than when we began this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So the first thing that you see on your outline is, first blank there, is the Pharisees watched rather than worshipped. The Pharisees here in verses 1 through 2, they watched in the synagogue rather than worshipped. You see in verses 1 and 2, again, Jesus comes to the synagogue, which has become his custom. He comes to the synagogue to teach or to take part, and a man there with a withered hand was there. And the Pharisees, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal this man on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. Now, many theologians may believe that this man with a withered hand was planted by the Pharisees on this Sabbath day in the midst of the synagogue to see whether Jesus would actually heal him. The Pharisaical law, you know the Ten Commandments, to keep the Lord's day and keep it holy. And so the Pharisees added all these rules and extra regulations so that no one would be uh, accused of breaking the law. One of those laws was that you could not heal anyone unless it was a life or death situation. So the Pharisees have found the perfect case study here. Right, we found a man with a withered hand so that he's not life or death. He's just got a withered hand. It's, a, it's an ailment, but it's not life or death. So if we bring this man in the midst of a synagogue, we know that Jesus can heal him. We know that he's compassionate. And so we put these two things together. We put him in the synagogue, and we think Jesus is going to heal him. And so they've done this with ill intent to bring him here, watching, ready to accuse him. Their hearts have not come into the synagogue to worship. Their hearts have come in to accuse. Now, this this word for accuse essentially means building a case for, uh, a legal case against him. So you can see the Pharisees over there with their notebook saying, well, a few days ago we saw Jesus do this. Put it down. 
Hey, and they're, they're probably conspiring saying, hey, we're going to get Jesus up in this synagogue with this withered hand man. We're going to get him to heal and boom, we got him. We got him. So this is the Pharisee's heart as they enter into the synagogue. Now, this, this has struck me deeply this week because if I'm not careful, uh, as much as we harp on the Pharisees and their lack of understanding, their hardness of heart, the frustration that Jesus sees with them over and over again, we can, we can see that. We can think, I'll never be them. But at times, can I tell you and confess that this is a reality in my life? That there's times and, and, and opportunities on Sunday morning in which I come to church and I watch rather than worship. Seasons of life in the past in which I've come into church to check off the box of coming to church and I watch rather than worship. I've come to see what's going to happen here on the stage and I watch the different people worship and I sit and I think about all the things that I've got going on or all that I'm going to do after church or I'm thinking about where I'm going to go eat after this or I think about what's going to happen in the coming week and my heart is far from worship. Can I tell you those Sunday mornings in which I come to church and my heart is so ready? When I've been, been preparing and saying, yes, Lord, I cannot wait to meet you there in that sanctuary. I cannot wait to be with God's people. I cannot wait to hear the chorus of voices lifted up. I cannot wait to sing your praises. I can't wait to read your word and let it hit my heart. Those Sundays in which I enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, every song that we sing, it seems like everything that appears up on the screen, it's like, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm ready. I'm anxious to worship you. I cannot wait to sing these songs. And every word seems like an offering of praise to the Lord. It seems like every time we open up God's word, it's like, yes, Lord, let it hit my heart and let me change because of it. Every prayer I'm praying alongside, participating, singing and worshiping. When the orchestra plays, it's like pointing my heart upwards. But there's also those times when I come into church I come into my personal time with the Lord and I feel like a spectator just watching. My heart's not ready. Spirit's not willing to receive and I'm just here. I tell you, I know the Lord can use even your presence in this place to do a mighty work, but can I tell you those times when my heart is just ready and I see the Lord. I'm encouraged in the Lord. I walk out of here just changed, a changed man. And if we're not careful, friends, we can have this pharisaical attitude that we just come into church and we're watching rather than worshiping. We're seeing everything happen. We say, oh, well, they're doing it over there. They got it going on over here. But we're not participating in worship. We're not seeing the words on the screen and saying, yes, Lord. Because you live, I know you hold my future, Lord. It is well with my soul, Lord. I trust in you. Even when sorrows like sea billows are rolling through my heart, I trust in you. It is well because you hold my future. Instead, at times when we walk in, it can just be, it's well. Ah, it's well. Sorrows or sea billows, yeah. I can't wait to go to the beach next week. But when we come in and we're not watching, 
When we are worshiping, friends, we're looking and saying, yes, Lord, have my heart be open. Lord, let me just be receptive to your word. And when our hearts, when our antennas are up, willing and ready, friends, we receive the good word from the Lord. It is here. He is here amongst us with two or three together. We've got more than two or three, so he is here amongst us. The very creator of the universe is here in this place. We didn't come just to simply watch participants on a stage. We've come to engage in the very act of worship. And so I can confess there have been those seasons and times and places where I have not entered into God's courts with thanksgiving and praise. As we come here this morning, we see as Jesus entered in the synagogue where you would go to worship and to learn and have your heart stretched, the Pharisees, they watched Jesus. They simply watched him to see and be prepared to accuse him, which gets to our next point that Jesus Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Verses two through four record that they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal so that they may accuse him. And so Jesus said to this man with a withered hand, um, come here. I want you to think about in this day that this would have been a a fairly uh, large-sized living room. Uh, Maybe 50 or so people could be in this synagogue, and they'd be all around the corners of the room, and Jesus would have been on a side, and they all would have been pressed in listening to Jesus. So Jesus calls this man, whether they've planted him or whether he is a regular attender, they've called this man, and Jesus puts him right smack dab in the middle of everybody. Jesus here is not avoiding a confrontation. Jesus easily could have waited and said, I'm going to avoid controversy. I'm just going to heal him tomorrow. You know, you've had a withered hand for probably several years, so what's one more day? So tomorrow, let's heal you up tomorrow. But instead, Jesus doesn't just whisper out um, some healing. He calls this man to the very center of the room and begins to talk. Begins to talk to the Pharisees and says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? The Pharisees believe in this moment that they've got this Jesus exactly where they want him. They are ready and anticipating this moment that they could accuse him, that he's going to break one of the Ten Commandments, one of the big no-nos. And here they've got him right where they want him. And Jesus, as he often does, has a way with words to just simply put it back in a way that leaves them absolutely silent. It says in verse 5, verse 4, that they were silent. They understood for him to do good on the Sabbath was not an evil thing. He wasn't killing. He wasn't doing anything nefarious, that he was simply healing and doing good on the Sabbath. And verse 5 records where we want to spend a bulk of our time this morning. As the Pharisees were silent, verse 5 records, as Jesus looked around at them with anger, Jesus was grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Can you imagine in this moment, this man with a withered hand comes and stands before the whole assembly, and he stretches out his hand, and in that moment, his hand is completely restored. What would be the response of the people? Do you think there would get an amen in the room? People saying, yes, this is good. This is amazing. This man goes from a withered hand to instantaneously he is healed. But you see in this that Jesus is he's angry. Some would say there's a righteous indignation at what he's experiencing. And what is it over? He's grieved at their hardness of heart. 
Let's pause for a moment and understand that when we read this in Scripture, when we see that Jesus is angry, grieved at hardness of heart, don't you want to not be in this situation? Don't you not want to be in the position in which Jesus looks upon you with anger and grieved at your hardness of heart? If you knew something that was going to anger the heart of God, don't you think that you would run and flee the other direction? I've learned just a few things in Brittany and I's marriage over the past 10 years, but I know that there's one thing that drives her absolutely bonkers. When she comes and cleans the bathroom, it seems like there's something in me that when she cleans the bathroom, that nice clean slate, I just want to shave my beard. I don't know what it is. It just happens. It's not on purpose, but it just happens, and she's cleaned up and ready to go, and then all of a sudden, I come in with my razor and clean, and I leave these little, you know, little beard hairs everywhere, and it drives her up the wall. I mean, righteous indignation comes out of her. It's, 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 it's duly noted. It is right. It is anger-provoking in her, but it drives her nuts. And after I've learned that it drives her nuts, wouldn't it be the height of foolishness to say, even though I love my wife so dearly, and this is a simple thing that I could do not to make her angry, wouldn't I flee the other direction and know I shouldn't do that anymore? How much more? How much more? When we recognize in Scripture that Jesus is angry, grieved at their hardness of heart, that we would say, Lord, I don't want anything to do with a hard heart. I want to run and flee in the opposite direction, Lord. Anything I can do to keep a moldable, malleable heart, let it be so. So as we come to this text, it grieves me to look at Jesus and see him grieved over their hardness of heart, angry with them. So why would Jesus be so angry and grieved at a hard heart? It's because a hard heart refuses the things of God. When we have a hard heart, a heart of stone, we simply refuse the things of God. We are not listening to the call and the heartbeat of the Lord. When we have a hard heart, we, we keep the gospel at arm's length. When we come face to face with truth, we deny its power and reality in our life. I simply would call this a gospel stubbornness. Is anybody here stubborn? Maybe you could point to your spouse, some of you. I don't know. There's a stubborn streak in us at times to look in the face of truth and go in the opposite direction. See this like a gospel stubbornness, to look in the face of God's word, to look at the face of scripture and say, ah, I think I can do it better. I want you to think through uh, the story of David and Bathsheba. You're very familiar with David and as David is up in his house at night, he sees Bathsheba out there bathing, and he does something that would probably be unthinkable. He invites her in, and she becomes with child. Now, instead of the ending it at that moment and confessing his sin and saying, I've messed up, I've fallen short, what does David do? He calls Bathsheba's husband off of war back home to try to cover up his sin. The snowball continues. As that doesn't work, David then sends Uriah out to the front lines to be murdered in action and takes Bathsheba to be his wife. Sin, getting more sinful, snowballing and snowballing and snowballing and snowballing. David came to a point where he was doing probably something that was unrecognizable to him, putting Bathsheba's husband Uriah on the front lines to be murdered. See, a gospel stubbornness will lead you to do things that you never thought possible. So how do we have a hard heart? What does it look like for us to have a hard heart? 
Can I tell you the easiest way for you to have a hardened heart is to continue to live in sin lifestyles without confessing. A hard heart looks like sinning and not grieving over it, to just simply sin and not be saddened and grieved over it. As Nathan comes to David after his sin, after all that he had done, when Nathan comes to confront David, when David understands and recognizes the depth of what he's done, what does he say in Psalm 51? His first response to understanding the severity of sin is to say simply, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David's call is simply, Lord, I need a new heart. Lord, would you take out this heart of stone that would lead me down this pathway, and would you renew a right spirit within me? Let me ask the question, are your hearts hardened this morning? Ephesians 4, 18 through 24 records, they, the Gentiles, are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They become callous. They've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way that you learned Christ. Friends, it can happen to any of us at any time that our hearts become hardened over things that we see and experience in our life. Let's go to this last point as we continue. The Pharisees in verse 6, in the midst of all that has happened, Jesus looking out and asking this man to stretch his hand out. He stretched it out. His hand is restored. And what happens in verse 6? The Pharisees went out immediately and they held counsel with Herodians against him how to destroy him. I want you to stop for a moment and recognize the sheer uh, lunacy of what's taking place. That the Pharisees are so angry, so frustrated, so filled with rage against Jesus that they would go out and try to figure out how to accuse him and destroy him. They're so angry on the Sabbath that Jesus would even dare to heal this man that they go out and conspire to murder him on the Sabbath. What? Can you imagine how just absolute insane this sounds? That the Pharisees so upset with Jesus for healing, doing good on the Sabbath, while on the Sabbath they would go out and conspire to commit murder on the Sabbath. Do you see how lunatic this looks? But this is what the hardness of our hearts do to us. They lead us down pathways to do things that we never thought imaginable. That a small sin, as we become hard in our hearts to things, it leads us down a snowball, an avalanche of sin till we're doing things that are unrecognizable to us. You look at this and say, Pharisees, how could you possibly miss it? How could you miss seeing good being done on the Sabbath that you walk away on the same day, conspire to murder Jesus? But at the same time, when my heart is hard, I, I do things that are so contrary to the will and nature of God. I do things that are simply not right. So let me ask you a few questions this morning that may get to the heartbeat of this. As you look inward, would your heart look upward? That we all are, in nature, can have hearts like the Pharisees, where our hearts can be hardened against the Lord. Maybe there's been things in your life in which uh, the Lord has allowed into your life cancer, or difficulty, or struggle, or strife, that the Lord has allowed into your life where your heart has become hardened against him. You're frustrated by what you've seen. Say, God, why would you allow these things? And over time, your heart has become hardened against what the Lord wants to do in your soul. Maybe over time, your heart has just become calloused 
against God's love, his care for you, that he has not left you nor forsaken you. Maybe your heart is beginning calloused against God. Maybe your heart, today you would say, my heart is not necessarily calloused against the Lord, but maybe your heart is calloused against people. Maybe there's particular groups of people in which your heart is calloused against. Maybe you have stereotypes in your heart and your mind. You've harbored callousness and prejudice in your heart where your heart has become hardened against particular people that were created in the image of God. Maybe your heart has become hardened against your spouse. And over time, in your difficulty of your marriage, your heart has become hardened against your husband or your wife. Circumstances and experiences and failures, your heart has just simply become hardened. Your home is not a place of peace, but it's a place in which both hearts are hardened and you simply do not come together and lift one another up and encourage. Maybe your hearts have become hardened against your children and you're just hardened and calloused against their seeming to not care about you or the Lord, and so your heart has become calloused in your prayers. The list could go on. Calloused against your boss, calloused against coworkers, calloused against the lost, and your heart is simply, instead of being malleable and moldable and ready to take in whatever the Lord calls you to, it's simply a hardened heart. It's simply a, a hard heart. It's hard to be used by the Lord. One of my favorite verses as a kid was a, a fun verse in Proverbs. It says, as a, fool, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. I think I just liked it because it said the word vomit in it. But it's such a good passage of Scripture. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. And a gospel stubbornness would say, even though these things that are true that I read in God's Word, even though I know that they would bring me freedom and life and hope, I'm still going to continue to drink out of the wells that only make me sick and leave me thirsty. Even though we see that there's things that I can do to bring life and light to my home and to my family, I'm going to continue doing the things that lead me down a pathway of destruction. It's a gospel stubbornness that leads us to truth and to Scripture and says, I just don't think I can do that. So you see in verse 4, Jesus, look at the Pharisees with this hardness of heart, grieved over it in anger and righteous indignation, grieved at their hardness of heart. That the Pharisees were not willing to look at Jesus and be ready to worship and be used by him. They've entered into the synagogue not to worship, but to simply watch. And so in just a moment, we're going to enter into a time of invitation, a time that we invite you to respond. A time in which you would look upward and say, Lord, I need you. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew this right spirit within me. And as we sing this stanza, as we sing this time of invitation, it is an opportunity for you to look deeply into your soul and say, Lord, where am I calloused? Where have I allowed hardness of heart to build up so I don't love people the way that you've called me to love them? That I don't care for people the way that you've called me to care for them? That I don't see the miraculous work all around me? But I don't enter into a worship service and praise you for who you are or read your word and say, Lord, would you just take me by the truth of who you are? So would we pray right now and just ask the Lord's leadership in our lives. Lord, we ask right now that we need you. Lord, I confess in my life those times and areas where I have allowed a hardness of heart to take me away from my calling and my purpose. A callousness over sin in my life that would just discount it or say it's not that big of a deal. Lord, we want to root out sin in our lives. But a callousness against people or Lord, would you help us? Or you pray as David did. Would you, 
Would you remove this heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that is ready, that is willing, that has arms outstretched, ready to be used, ready to be moldable into your image. Lord, we don't want to conform to this world. We want to be transformed into your nature. So Lord, help us. We confess our great need of you this morning. Lord, we love you and thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.